some let off at least in the in the weather. It's at least a little warmer. We're going to get some more snow tomorrow, I think, but uh, it's supposed to be 40 degrees later in the week. It's going to be time to break out the flip-flops. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to be laying out if we hit 50. Uh, in any case, um, I want to, um, you know, Ranger Rick talked earlier about um, being called into full-time Christian ministry and, and full-time service to the Lord, and I want to introduce uh, to you, those of you who don't know this, uh, this man to my left, uh, this is Carl Baker Christoffel, and he is uh, embarking on a new chapter in his life uh, with his family, and I want to give him an opportunity to tell you about it. As Ranger Rick, I have in the past been in full-time ministry, also at Great Oaks Camp, and uh, have ever since then felt God's calling to, to come back to full-time missions, and uh, have finally, uh, finally given into that call and, and uh, decided that going to accept the position, uh, full-time ministry position with uh, Small World Connections will be the operations director um, alongside of Brent Resler in Small World Connections. And uh, just have a, just a minute here this morning, so I'll just basically just keep it very brief and say please pray for us as we step out into this. And if you uh, like more information, feel free to, to talk with me uh, afterwards or during the potluck dinner or whenever you can get a hold of me. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Uh, Carl is uh, obviously going to need some support and help uh, to uh, en enable that transition to work for him and his family, and so he'll need a lot of prayer. He'll need a lot of uh, a lot of help. So um, make sure that you talk to him if you're uh, if you're interested in supporting what they're doing at Small World Connections and uh, trying to um, connect missionaries. To churches all over the world, and um, it's a it's a great ministry. Uh, they operate the resale shop here in town, and uh, and donate the proceeds of that to uh, various Christian uh, ministries and groups. They've opened a new shop in Canton, Illinois, uh, that I guess is also going well. And um, and Carl will have a lot of involvement in that. So be sure to talk to Carl and to Rachel about that. Um, and. Uh, and, and help them in that transition as you're able. Um, I want to pray for us here as we open God's word together. So let's do that. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your great grace to us and to this church. Uh, Father, it's a great joy to see people in uh, Chillicothe Bible Church being called into ministry and being sent out to do it and to serve you and to exalt you with their life. And Father, we, uh, we would ask for your Holy Spirit's leading here this morning as we open your word together. Father, we pray that we would not only hear the word, but we would be effectual doers of it. In Jesus' name. You know, one of the great joys of my life is being your pastor. I really do enjoy it. I get a kick out of, out of uh, being with you every week. Uh, I miss you when you're not here. Uh, some of you. I probably got greeted that way this morning. Uh, I miss you when you're not here. I love you, and I enjoy being with you. 
uh, one of the highlights of my week is being with you here at church on uh, Sunday morning. One of the other great joys, though, is being a parent. And uh, I have four kids, not six, just four. Uh, but uh, uh, but one of the things that, that being a parent has taught me is that I have learned a lot along the way about my relationship with God. Uh, I've not only grown in my relationship with God, but I've learned a lot about what it's like to be God in relationship with me as I watch how my kids act in relationship with me. And I see them do things or say things or act in certain ways, and I look at them and I go, Father, is that what I'm like? Um, Because this seems like me, a miniature version of me in relationship with you. And uh, many times uh, I, uh, I have to bring discipline into their life, and I understand better how God's grace and his discipline coexist and are intermixed in my life too. And sometimes I learn lessons from other people's kids. Uh, I remember a number of years ago now uh, talking with a fellow pastor of mine, and he had a little girl. She was a little redheaded girl, and she was a spitfire. I have a thing for little redheaded girls, and and uh, married one, you know. And um, and this little girl was so sweet and so fun, but she was very determined to shape the world how she wanted. And so when her parents came one day and asked her to do something, she looked up at them, she's four years old, and she says, the thing is, see, I don't want to. (laughs) Okay, and we we heard that and laughed, (laughs) and we thought, oh boy, you got your hands full with her. And, you know, we talked about it over coffee later. He laughed also because it was funny. You know, she was just this little thing, you know, and he's about 6'2". And and it didn't occur to her as a four-year-old that her wishes in the the circumstance were not entirely relevant, that she was going to do what mom and dad asked regardless, right? Because... He is the daddy, and she's the little girl, and what he says goes. Uh, But I think that little incident perfectly encapsulates what a lot of people do when God gives them a command. They look up at God, and in their 30-year-old voice, or 50-year-old voice, or 15-year-old voice, or whatever it is, say, well, the thing is, see, I don't want to. (laughs) <laughs> and God laughs, <laughs> right? Because the thing is, see, you're going to because He's God, um, and and the the you know the thing is is that actually Moses tries to do that with God. You know, the people in the Bible they are not plaster saints; they are real people, and they have real normal responses. Uh, in their relationship with God, they look a whole lot like us. So if you've got your Bible, uh, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there are some brand new Bibles uh, in the back there that are wrapped up, and you can feel free to grab one and take it home with you as our gift to you. Uh, we'd love for you to have a Bible uh, to read and to study of your own. Um, we give away a lot of those every year, so uh, feel free to, uh, to grab one and keep it. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 20, 
Then Moses answered, now this is Moses, he's still standing at the burning bush talking to God. Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe in these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the sign. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now last week as we began this, Moses is standing before God at the burning bush, and while he's standing there, he gives two reasons why he should not be the one to go to Egypt and deliver the people. And this week, we're going to see three more reasons. The first two reasons that we saw last week were, first of all, God, who am I? And God says, it doesn't matter who you are. You are the person I have chosen, and besides that, I will be with you. And it matters less, Moses, who you are than who I am, and I'm going with you. And Moses says, well, all right. Well, who are you? (laughs) It's a natural question. I've just started talking to you here out of the bush, and you've got to admit, God, this is a little bit weird. So who are you? I've never met you before. And God reveals Himself as the God of Moses' father, the God of the 
of the fathers of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the great I Am, the God who exists as the eternal one. The one who made everything, who God who exists outside of time and brought time itself along with all of creation into existence. That's who I am, Moses. Moses goes, okay, I got it. Clear on that. Uh, but what if they don't believe me? That's this week. What if they don't believe me? And God says, well, I'll give you signs. I got three of them. You're going to like these. Take the stick that you got in your hand. Moses is a shepherd. And he's an old man. He's 80. So he needs a stick to kind of walk and get around. And he says, throw your stick down on the ground. Moses throws his staff down on the ground, and it becomes a snake. Now, the text does not specify what kind of a snake it was. I happen to think it was probably a cobra. Uh, because Moses runs from it, and cobras are common in that part of the world. Uh, now, it, if it was my wife and something transformed into a stick, it would not matter. Garter snake, king cobra, python, don't care. <laughs> snake to the rear march, you know, she's gone, <laughs> right? And, uh, but Moses runs from the snake, and I think it's a cobra, and I'll tell you why. Because the cobra was the symbol of Lower Egypt, where the Israelites were living. And, and it was associated in Egyptian mythology with the, the, it was worship, the cobra was worshipped as a god. And he was believed to be the source of wisdom. Now, if you've read Genesis 3 and you remember the snake in the garden, that ought to give you chills right up your spine. Okay? They worshipped the snake as a god. And they put it, they put a little, if you look at Egyptian art or you look at um, uh, Egyptian uh, treasures and so forth, like in King Tut's tomb, they have a, they'll have a coiled cobra with the hood fully extended on the front of King's crown. And if you remember what happens when he goes to Pharaoh, his snake eats up all of the other snakes of the Egyptian magician. And that's significant because God is saying, I am the creator. I am the one who is able to overrule all of Egypt and everything that you worship. And so he gives him this sign. He turns the, turns the staff into a snake. And then he tells Moses, Moses, come back over here. And pick up the, the snake by the tail. Now, I'll just give you some advice. This is free. Unless God tells you to pick up a snake by the tail, or you have a severe um, death wish in terms of wanting to get snake bit, <laughs> okay, don't do that. It's not a good idea. You know What you want to do is get a stick and hold that thing's head shut. Um, but he says, pick him up by the tail. So Moses reaches out, and the words in Hebrew don't come, come uh, all the way through into English because, Mo because God tells Moses, grab the snake. And, and what Moses does, as, as the Hebrew says, is he kind of <laughs> you know, he kind of reaches out real gingerly and tentatively and picks it up, and it turns back into a staff in his hand. 
And God says, okay, well, I've got another one for you. Stick your hand inside your cloak. This is the outer garment that, that, uh, that all men wore in those days. He sticks his hand in. He says, all right, take it out. And when he takes it out, his whole hand is affected with leprosy. Now, leprosy is, uh, in those days, an incurable disease. And meant isolation and uh, death alone for the rest of your life if you had it. And it's immediately recognizable. And he takes it out, wow. He says, all right, stick it back in. And all of his flesh is restored. What's God doing? He's telling Moses, I am the God who has authority over life and death, over disease, over nature, over healing. And it's also, I think, both with the snake and with the hand and then later with the blood that he's able to pour out of the water, you know, out of the water. He's saying, he's giving foreshadowing of these plagues that are coming. You want to know whether or not you ought to obey God, you ought to watch the signs and realize that God is powerful and he means business. And when he tells Pharaoh, let my people go, you best listen. And then the next, you know, last one is the sign that also becomes the first plague of turning the, Mo- the Nile River into blood. And Moses watches the signs and he says, okay, that's all very good. I'm sure that will convince everybody that you've sent me. However, I don't speak very well. And in fact, he kind of implicates God in this. He says, I've never been eloquent either in the past. In other words, I was born this way. And since we've started talking, my speech pattern has not improved. <laughs> in other words, God, it's kind of your fault that, you know, you picked me out, but I, I don't know how to talk. And there's a debate about what that means exactly. Some commentators, in fact, traditional Jewish interpretation on this passage is that Moses stuttered. When he spoke, which is not precisely the most impressive uh, uh, oratorical presentation when you go before the king of the ancient world, Pharaoh of Egypt. Uh, that you stand there going, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the God of the fathers has spoken to me, and he, he said, 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 you need to let the people go. You know, that's, that's what he's worried about is what some people think. And I think that may well be the case. I think it's also possibly the case that he's just making excuses. Well, I'm not an orator, you know, and uh, I don't exactly know who, what you're going for here, but, but I'm not the guy. In fact, you get tipped off on that by the words that he uses. In this whole passage, you hear God uh, use, his, use His name of Yahweh, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In this whole passage, it says, and the Lord said, and God said, you know, and the Lord said, the Lord spoke to Moses, and the Lord said this, and the Lord did that, right? Well, then when Moses is offering his objections, here in verse 10, and then also 
in verse 13, he changes the word. He says, O my Lord. And that's the Hebrew word Adonai. It means master, sir, Lord. It would be a whole lot like, uh, in other words, he switches from a relational name, a covenant name, the, God, the name by which God just revealed himself to Moses as the God of the covenant, the I Am, who keeps covenant with his people, to now Moses is switched over to a more distant form of relationship, like you would use to address your boss but not like you would use to address someone with whom you were closely related. It would be like if you, were, if you were giving instructions to your kids and they said to you, all the way through it's been daddy, daddy, dad, etc. And all of a sudden they come out with sir. And you go, what's that about? Because they're distancing themselves from wanting to obey. You know, like when sometimes, sometimes you see, you see this in in kids. You know, some a parent or a teacher will give them an instruction, and it's, and instead of saying yes, they'll give kind of a sassy yes. They'll say, "Oh yes, sir, I'll get right on that." That's kind of what Moses is doing. He's changing the name that he calls God, and he's kind of hinting at the fact that he's backing out of this deal. But look at God's response, what he says. Who made man's mouth? Who who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will teach you what to say, and I will give you what to speak. In other words, he's saying, Moses, that all may be true, but I'm going to use you exactly how I made you. And more than that, I can be glorified regardless of your ability or your disability, as the case might be, because I give both of them as I choose. Let me underline that just a second. God is the God, by his own word, of the freakishly talented and the inept. God is the God of the able-bodied and the disabled, the healthy and the sick. And in fact, he can be glorified just as much, if not more, by weakness than by strength. Amen? God can be glorified more many times by weakness and by disability than by strength. Uh, a couple days ago, I got the opportunity to watch uh, the watch a video put out by a group uh, that does these videos uh, called "I Am Second. And um, this particular one featured Scott Hamilton. Now, some of you may not know who that is, but he's a multiple world champion and Olympic champion figure skater. And he's a Christian. He's sharing his story. And he's talking about how this happened. He said, well, when I was a little kid, I got very, very sick with a mysterious illness that caused me not to grow anymore. And so his height topped out, I think he's about five foot three, which is short for a man. 
But he says, as I was sick, I began hanging around the ice skating rink that was near the hospital and learned to skate and so forth. And he goes, and eventually I just got better and we quit going to the hospital. And he, he says, I got better and better at skating because it just I was associated with healing to me. And I got better and better and began to compete and win. And he goes, eventually became an Olympic champion, Olympic gold medalist, multiple-time world champion. And later on, he got cancer, survived that. And then later on, they diagnosed him with a brain tumor. And he goes, you know what I found out? He says, I found out I had that brain tumor way, way back when I was a little kid. And they never figured out what the illness was, but it was that. And if I had never had the cancer in my brain, I never would have become an ice skater. And I never would have won all these gold medals. I never would have gone into all this. He says, and my story would have looked totally different. If I'd been tall, I wouldn't have been able to skate well. Isn't that amazing? You won't think, I mean, it's hard to think about, I thank God I had a brain tumor. No, I wouldn't, that wouldn't be the first thought that would come to my mind. But God put that in his life specifically so his life would take the path that it took. And God is saying something similar to Moses. Moses, I made you exactly the way you are. And I'm going to use you precisely the way you are to glorify me. And then Moses comes back with his last excuse, which is, the thing is, see, I don't want to go. <laughs> and, I mean, it's a more adult version than that, but it's, it's pretty much that's what he says. It's the 80-year-old version of that. Is <laughs> uh, Oh, Lord, please send someone else. And God says, okay, fine. You want me to send someone else? I'm going to send you... And I'm also going to send with you your brother Aaron, because I know he knows how to talk. And you can tell him what I told you, and he'll do the signs for you. And you can, you can in a sense, be like God, and he can be your prophet. And you know what? Here's the thing. Moses got to share responsibility with his brother Aaron, but you know what else he got to share? The glory and the honor of serving God in one of the mightiest ways that anyone ever got to. And you know what else he got to share? A whole bunch of headache and heartache from his brother Aaron. His brother Aaron is the guy who makes the golden calf that the Israelites are nearly destroyed by God for worshiping. In chapter 32, we're going to get there. He's also the brother who in the book of Numbers will not get there this time. Leads a rebellion with his sister Miriam against Moses being the leader of the people. So Aaron is at best a concession and a mixed blessing that God bestows on, on Moses' life. He says, okay, you want to have somebody who's, who doesn't quite follow you? I'll show you what it's like. To have somebody who doesn't want to quite follow you. I'll give you someone just like that. Your brother. And you can be like God to him. Tell him what I said. 
And he says, and by the way, Moses, get going and take your stick. (laughs) And so Moses does. He goes off to Jethro, his father-in-law. And he doesn't tell him what God told him. Do you notice that? As we read the story, he goes, he says, uh, hey, um, I want to go back to Egypt and check on my family and see if any of them are still around. Is that what God is sending him to Egypt to do? To just kind of, you know, get a report? No. He doesn't give him the whole truth. Maybe he doesn't want to explain, you know. I mean, I don't know what his relationship with his father-in-law is like, but he's maybe he's thinking, I don't want to have to explain why I'm taking the grandkids and the wife off on this crazy crusade to Egypt. And so I'm just going to tell him that I'm going to check up on my family. And so he loads up his entire family, which, by the way, signifies that he's probably not coming back. Because you wouldn't take your children and your wife off into that kind of an environment if you thought that you were probably going to return. Moses doesn't think he's probably going to return. But he takes the staff of God in his hand. Now, notice that. Look at verse 20. He took the, the what? The staff of God in his hand. That's a fairly miraculous transformation in a few verses. Verse 17, take in your hand your stick. Verse 20, Moses took the staff of God in his hand. What made the, what made the change? Well, obedience is part of it, for sure. But all of a sudden, this ordinary stick, was there anything special about this stick? No. Was there anything magical about it? No. It wasn't like in Harry Potter where you pick it up and sparks shot out the end. (laughs) Okay. It wasn't like that. It was an ordinary piece of dry stick. It was just wood. But it became the staff of God because God told Moses, I'm going to dedicate that stick for you to serve me with. And it was an ama- it actually got used by God to do some amazing things. With that stick, Moses walks out into the Nile and turns the Nile River into blood. With that stick, he parts the waters of the Red Sea. With that stick, he brings water from the rock twice becomes the staff of God because it's an ordinary thing devoted to God's extraordinary purpose. Years ago, Francis Schaeffer gave a sermon called No Little People, No Little Places. He talks about Moses' stick. And his point is this. He says, this is an ordinary stick belonging to a nobody from nowhere. And that's what Moses is. He's a washed up former prince of Egypt who's 80 years old, living in the backside of the desert, taking care of sheep. He does not have an exciting job. He is not located in a major metropolitan area, having a you know, culturally influential position. That is not where he is. And yet God takes him and his stick to enact the, the picture of deliverance of his people in the entire Old Testament, every Every prophet, every story, God refers back 
to Moses and the Exodus and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt with my outstretched hand and my upraised arm. And he uses Moses and this stick to do it. And Schaefer's point is, is the same one that I'll make to you. That if that's what God can do with a nobody from nowhere in his stick, imagine what he can do with you and with me and with our church, by the way. You know, we're going to have this meeting after the service and talk about 2018 by 2018, our, our goal of reaching 2018 people by the year 2018. December 31st of that year, we want to have shared the gospel with that many people in our community. Do I think we can do that? No, I don't. Do I think God can work through us and see that accomplished? Yes. Why? Because God is the God who takes ordinary things and ordinary people and does extraordinary things with them. As they are submitted to Him, as they are obedient to Him, as they are transformed by Him, God changes things and changes people and makes them capable of doing things they never imagined. And, and I believe that we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Because God is the, still the same God who does extraordinary things with ordinary people and things. Amen? All right, let's move on. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, here in this section, we see two instances of rebellion. First, God is talking to Moses about Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh's not going to do what I'm sending you to command him to do. I'll just tell you in advance, Moses, while you're on the way, just be aware, Pharaoh is not going to do what you tell him. I know that's a surprise. And God says, and you know why, Moses? And this will blow your mind says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so it won't happen until after Pharaoh's firstborn son is dead. Why? Well, this gets into this whole issue of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And it's a bigger question than I've got time to address here this morning. But this I know for sure. God is doing... Uh, what he wills to Pharaoh because Pharaoh is in his hand and he can do with him whatever he wants because he is God. And that in so doing, he is not being unjust to Pharaoh. 
Because remember who Pharaoh is. He is not some, you know, jovial fellow who is just walking around minding his own business. No. He is the person who is who has enslaved and continuing to subjugate the people of Israel who are God's, to use God's language, firstborn son. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment on that fellow and on his nation. Let me give you another practical reason why I think all the plagues are going to come on Pharaoh and why God is going to work in Pharaoh such that he does not repent before the end. So that Egypt could be destroyed as a major power in the world for hundreds of years. Why would that be important? Well, because the little nation called Israel is wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And then for a long time, after they get into the land, they are uh, oppressed and disobedient and so forth under the period of the judges. And they need time to rise up and be established as a nation in their own right. And so for 480 years between the Exodus and King Solomon, Egypt doesn't have any influence or power over the land that becomes the nation of Israel. How does that happen? Ten plagues. And God allows every one of them, not just to bring about the repentance of part of the people in Egypt, but to ensure that his people, the people from whom the Messiah and the word of God are going to come, that they are protected and preserved. Now, the other rebellion you see is Moses himself. And Moses is an Israelite. He knew God's covenant with Abraham required circumcision. Moses would have been circumcised by his parents, but Moses' own son is not. Why? Because Moses was disobedient to the covenant that he knew. And God is saying, I'm going to call, send you into, unto my people who have my covenant, and you're going to be my representative of the covenant that I'm making with them, and you need to be obedient to it. You're the leader. By the way, does God still expect that? Yes. That if you're the leader, you can't be doing less than what God requires of everybody else. And so it's, the text says Moses uh, was nearly killed over this. Over outright rebellion and disobedience to what he knew God's will to be. And so his wife takes a flint knife because in those days they didn't have surgical instruments like we have. And flint was sharper than what you could make out of metal. And she circumcises their son. And she tells him, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me now. And it's a double entendre. She, um, she was a virgin girl, no doubt, when she married Moses. And in, and in the sealing of their covenant on their wedding night, he became her bridegroom of blood. But now, there's blood again involving the same set of organs. And she's, she's referencing the circumcision that she has to give their son. And she touches Moses, the text says feet, but that's euphemistic with it. And says, Moses, this is the seal of the covenant. 
covenant you made with God. Last section of the text here. I know I'm running short on time, but we'll, we'll wrap this up. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Everything goes precisely according to God's promise. Moses meets Aaron. Aaron becomes the spokesperson. They meet with the elders and the people. And none of what Moses feared would happen. You know, what if the people don't listen to me? All the rest of that kind of thing. None of it comes to pass. Aaron relays the words of God and does the signs with his staff. And all the people believe. And God is beginning to bring deliverance through Aaron and Moses. And the people worship. Well, what's the point of all this text, this whole chapter? What's the point? The point is, is that God is, is sovereign and that he overrules the reluctant and the rebellious to bring his people into a worshipful relationship with him. That's the point of the whole book, is that God is able to take rebellious people and make them into worshipers. And that's what he does. He transforms Moses, and then Moses carries God's message and leads the entire nation of Israel in worship because they know that God loves them and that he cares for them and that he is going to act on their behalf. What do we do with this passage? Three things I'll give you here before we wrap up. Number one, worship God for his mysterious sovereign rule that saves his chosen people. I do not totally understand, and I can't unwind for you, how God is sovereign in such a way that people are still responsible for what they do, as Pharaoh was responsible for his rebellion. But this I know for sure, that God sovereignly works in order to save people, and God's sovereignty is always connected with his salvation of his people. And so our response to reading that and understanding that out of the Scriptures should not be a philosophical inquiry into how that works. What it, ought, what it ought to result in instead is a humble and and reverent awe for the fact that God has sovereignly worked to save me and you. Also known, by the way, as worship. That you look at what God has done and how he has worked in history and you go, uh, all that for me? Yes, for you and for me. God's sovereignty ought to result in our worship because he saves us. Number two, worship God for using ordinary people and things to accomplish extraordinary purposes. Moses' staff becomes the staff of God. Moses, the stuttering shepherd, becomes servant of the Lord. The old man from the middle of nowhere walks in the halls of power and tells Pharaoh off. How? By becoming devoted to God and his purposes. 
And in the same way, there are no little people in this congregation. There's no little place that we are from. God uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary, and we ought to worship him for it. Last thing, carry God's message. Just like Moses, you are someone with a message of freedom to carry to people who are held captive. Amen? Moses' message goes to those who are in slavery to Pharaoh. Ours goes forth to those who are enslaved by Satan and sin. And there is no good excuse that God will accept for us not to obey. Amen? The same God who promised to be with Moses is the same God who promises to be with you and be with me when we carry that message. And if we refuse, then as Mordecai told Esther in the book of Esther, then salvation will arise for God's people from another place. God will go around you. He's not limited by the fact of your disobedience or mine. But nevertheless, we have the privilege and the responsibility to carry God's message. And the only question is, will we obey? And do what the great I am has asked of us. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word which encourages me and lifts me up and and lets me know that you are a God who loves me, a God who calls me, a God who uses ordinary people like me and like all of us here to do your will, which is truly extraordinary. Father, these things are too wonderful for us even to speak of. And so we, we contemplate them and we think about them and we talk to one another about them and then we place our hand over our mouth and just sit there in awe. That you would... Be that kind of God who would do those kinds of things with people like us. And Father, we love you. We love you for your redemption, for your sovereign grace that extended to us. Father, we pray we would obey your word, that we would carry forth your message to those who are lost and enslaved and dying, that they might be set free and experience the joy of being part of the people of God. I pray in Jesus' name.